This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Mole, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Jill Lepore is the David Woods Kemper Professor of American History at Harvard University and staff writer for The New Yorker. A prize-winning professor, she teaches classes in evidence, historical methods, humanistic inquiry, and American history. Her books include The Name of War, which won the Bancroft Prize, New York Burning, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in History, and Book of Ages, a finalist for the National Book Award. Her latest book, These Truths, A History of the United States, came out just a few weeks ago and is the topic of our conversation today. Professor Lepore, welcome to Thinking in Public. Professor Lepore, when when you wrote this book, this massive one-volume history, a narrative of of the United States in one volume, wouldn't you say that's kind of an audacious project in the year 2018 when the book was released? Sure. I guess in in the best sense, I would hope that uh, it was an ambitious project to take on and I think also an urgent one. Yes, uh, someone's going to tell this story. I have to tell you, I I so thoroughly enjoyed the book. I've been looking forward to this conversation because it it takes a remarkable historical ability to be able to sustain a narrative for, uh, you know, several hundred pages, not to mention uh, covering several centuries. And uh, and you accomplished that. But of course, that's in the background of the fact that to write about any era of American history, not to mention the entire span of American history, is uh, is downright controversial in our age. It is. It really has become so. And I think for understandable reasons and then for some more dubious reasons, uh, it used to be the case that it was really the capstone of a career for, I don't know, a certain sort of historian, distinguished historian. You know, at a certain point in one's career, one would attempt to offer to the public one's bandage on the whole of the American story, uh, the American epic. And so that was seen as a kind of public service and something that someone who devoted, you know, a lifetime to studying the past ought to do really as a matter of civic duty, I guess. Uh, and there were these, this was fashionable for different reasons at different points and, and had different ends, but the practice became, I think, more or less untenable in the 1960s. And up up until the 1960s, every generation had its version of its version of this book, if not kind of many competing versions of the book, which is all to the good, right? There is no last word on American history. We need to retell the story, and new evidence comes to light, and new interpretations, new methods of interpretation are available. Uh, it's just a kind of a necessary thing. But um, in the 1960s, when the historical profession just uh, really exploded with a kind of revolution of new research. And uh, partly because the academy opened up and uh, women and people of color got PhDs and entered the academy, the historical profession became much more capacious. And that generation of younger scholars was trying to blow up what had previously been known as the consensus interpretation of American history, which is kind of the 1950s version, and told, a, you know, did incredible archival research to recover the stories of, of particular groups, ethnic groups, religious groups. Uh, racial groups and talked a lot about conflict and had a kind of conflict and group driven account of American history that was that involved a lot of fracturing and uh, to, to even I guess aspire to write a national history was seen 
I think as a as a betrayal of that new scholarship, um, a kind of flattening out of difference, something that was essentially a nationalist project, I think. And so there was, you know, there, by the time I was in college in the 1980s, there really wasn't that book anymore, uh, that sort of right. one big book that you would read to kind of get a first acquaintance with the big sweeping story. And in my, you know, decades as a historian, I don't, you know, there, not that there aren't, you know, wonderful books written about all kinds of things, but the, the, it just doesn't happen that often anymore, as you say. It's, right. And it's not a commonplace activity. Well, and you indeed, uh, and uh, I, I've read just about everything you've written, uh, you have uh, yourself kind of demonstrated that uh, attention to uh, those who receive very little attention, the, the Jane Franklins of this world, and, uh, and, and frankly, even to popular culture with Wonder Woman. Uh, those are historical interests that certainly didn't mark someone who would hold an endowed chair at Harvard University a generation ago. That's true. That, they, you know, that's absolutely the case. And, and that most of my work comes out of my commitment as someone who was trained uh, to at a moment when it was really clear what had been lost by not paying attention to so many different people's lives and allowing the story of a nation to be the story of the succession of its presidents. And, you know, that's not that the March of the Presidents isn't important, but it's incredibly important political history. But I was trained and became a historian because I really cared about recovering the stories and the lives of uh, people whose footprint in the historical record was maybe a little shallower, and they were, their lives were a little bit harder to tease out. I'm really interested in issues of, of inequality, as, of course, many people are, but the way those manifest themselves in the historical record is through the asymmetry of evidence. So in the case of Jane Franklin, a woman I just kind of came, you know, sort of deeply love and admire, you know, I, I, we, we know that Franklin, of course, was this incredibly brilliant man and prolific correspondent, wrote, you know, hundreds of thousands of letters and, you know, on top of being an essayist and a printer and a philosopher and a politician and a philanthropist, he leaves, leaves this extraordinary paper trail. And, you know, there's a project at Yale that's been editing Franklin's papers and publishing them in multiple volumes. They started in 1958 and they're not done yet. I mean, it's just this incredible volume of, 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 of evidence in his own words about his life and his sister Jane, who's the person he was closest to his entire life, uh, could not have been more different in how her life turned out, but also the trail of paper that she leaves behind. My commitment as a historian is we, you know, we will know more about ourselves and treat one another more humanely if we know more about people we come from. And we need to know about the lives of ordinary Women like Jane Franklin married very young, had had twelve children, cared for them, cared for her children, raised her great grandchildren when her you know great grand when her granddaughters died, uh, lived a, a life of great tribulation, uh, had a very different position on religion from from her brother, uh, and but tells us a lot about uh, inequality in the 18th century and forms of inequality that persist to this day, and also forms of attachment and love and compassion and generosity. Well, looking at how history has been done, especially in the uh, late 20th and early 21st century, looking at the impact of, uh, of, of the French Annales School and all the, the small histories, the petite histories, you've really given a lot of attention to that and, uh, and developed a certain narrative skill, I would argue, in doing that, also by your writing for The New Yorker. It's a, it's a different project to be able to sustain that over the course of American history and, and over hundreds of pages 
But uh, I, I say this as a, as a word of tribute. I really do think you have sustained a, a narrative, and uh, it, it is a page-turner, which uh, isn't always said about works of American <laughs> history. Well, it's very kind of you to say. I'm glad you enjoyed the book. I, I really want people to read it as a kind of from front to back, like as a, as a book that has a kind of beginning, a middle, and an end. I mean, obviously the story continues, but uh, I wanted it to have that feeling of momentum. I, I think the past has that for me. And I don't know, I, I worked really hard at that. So it's gratifying to hear that, that, that where that worked. I, I did write it fairly quickly, partly with that in mind. I, yeah. um, I love writing essays. I, I love the, the evanescence of an essay. I love kind of immersing myself in something for six weeks and then never thinking about it again. And I kind of treated the book that way. I, I, I wrote it from beginning to end. I wrote it chronologically, rigidly chronologically. I read stuff for, you know, one chapter and wrote the chapter and then moved right on to read stuff for the next chapter. And I, I, I was hoping that some sense of the frenetic pace with which I attacked the project would bring energy to the, to the prose because I, I guess I just really, I mean, I guess there's not a historian who doesn't think this, but I do think that the long view is really important as a perspective that gives us the gift of humility. Uh, and it's hard to take the time to get the long view. So uh, I, I wanted people to feel almost rushed through it. I uh, really appreciate the attention to ideas. And at the very beginning of the book, you say the American experiment rests on three political ideas identified by Thomas Jefferson as these truths, thus the title of your book. And uh, those three political ideas being political equality, natural rights, and the sovereignty of the people. And uh, at least as I understand your project here, you've tried to demonstrate how those three ideals or ideas, truths, uh, really became, uh, well, the the American experiment, but not exactly as anyone might be able to predict at the beginning or even explain at the end. Yeah, so there's two pieces of work that I was trying to do here. One is to explain where those ideas came from and why and you know and why and exactly when. Uh, it's not every nation that's founded on a set of ideas <laughs> as opposed to, you know, common language or shared ancestry or uh, particular attachment to a place. You know, the, the United States really is founded on these ideas and and it, it only kind of continues to exist and to be nourished so long as we hold these ideas. Uh, so the first piece of work sort of where these ideas come from and really ponder that. So, the, you know, the, there's a whole lot of chapters before we get to those ideas being, you know, declared uh, by Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. And then the second piece of business is to sort of say, well, what, what happens with them? Like, what is that? That sort of sets this experiment underway. And that's certainly how the framers, you know, as you say, talked about the founding of the country and especially about the Constitution as an experiment, as a political experiment, to see if it's possible to people to live uh, in accordance with these ideas. And you know, Hamilton, the book sort of frames the question around Alexander Hamilton's question in the first of the Federalist Papers in which he said, you know, you look through history, all other governments have fallen to the forces of uh, violence uh, and prejudice and uh, really accident. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to make an experiment here. We're going to write a constitution and ask people to ratify it. And then we're going to see if it's possible for people to devise a system of government 
that won't end in violence, in conquest or in defeat or in you know empirical overreach or corruption or demagoguery or uh, prejudice and oppression. And we'll, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> so, uh, so the second piece of business of the book then is to is to sort of look at how that goes, like to do to do that work. Like how, how the how is the experiment going? Well, as you as you tell the story, uh, let me back up a minute. And so let, let's say that we are just talking on the average American elite college or university campus, and, and we're raising those three ideas of uh, political equality, natural rights, and the sovereignty of the people. And, uh, and then we ask the question, how's that worked out for, for the nation? I, I think there are two massive narratives. One of them is, well, here's how it worked out. Uh, eventually the logic of those ideas drove through American civilization in such a way that confronted with the the horrible contradiction of slavery, eventually those ideals won out uh, violently and uh, and, and, uh, and yet inexorably. And, and so the America we know today is the product of those ideals working themselves out in logic. The other, the other counter-narrative would be uh, th- this is all just a ruse uh, by the founders uh, language they're using that they didn't actually believe. It's just another form of aristocracy protecting itself and projecting itself into the future. And, uh, and, and of course, uh, uh, in, uh, embracing this kind of contradiction that has led to, uh, to continual national frustration. And, and you're really taking neither of those two narratives as, as, as your story, but they're there in the background. Yeah, it, it's that's very aptly put and i think that the one of the troubles with those two narratives or the narrative and the counter narrative as as you describe them is that they map on precisely to sort of partisan preferences and so even our understanding of the past at this point in our highly you know hyperpolarized political world uh kind of conforms to these to, to, to this partisan divide and and i i wrote the book with an attempt to, to really to, to reject that division uh and to ask people to kind of move outside that division and one one way that my story differs from or tries to kind of break out of uh, that divide is by exploring pretty carefully in the early chapters of the book how those ideas, those truths are actually forged in, the, in a crucible of violence and that it's not sort of then slavery is a challenge to these ideas. It is actually, and, and this is certainly not my original work as a historian, this relies on decades of really wonderful historical scholarship and most of all the work of the great Yale historian Edmund Morgan, thinking about how it is actually it is as horrible as this is to confront. It is the experience uh, of slaveholding that casts liberty into sharp relief for, say, you know, those 18th, 17th and 18th century Virginians who are really very uh, carefully advancing ideas about liberty in the 17th and the 18th century at the time that they are devising codes of laws that give them utter arbitrary authority over other human beings. And what they have become very sophisticated in understanding is the nature of tyranny. And, you know, for a historian like Morgan, who wrote this brilliant book in 1975, American Slavery, American Freedom, you know, because this is the central paradox of American history, according to Morgan, that that the world's first modern democracy is a product of kind of the last bastion of slavery in the modern world. And that, that that the failure to confront that uh, deprives us all of a shared past. So that's, I guess, so, you know, part of my move is there about breaking out of that is, you know, it's not like 
there was this great set of ideas or there were these, there was this disingenuous set of ideas and then sort of other things happened. But these ideas come out of uh, this extraordinary crucible. Um, the, 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 the claims of uh, the sovereignty of the people, claims about natural rights, these emerge from as much from uh, the excruciating knowledge gained by slaveholders as, and especially from the everyday revolts of enslaved people, uh, run away, they're running away, speeches that they make, protests that they make, petitions that they file, that we see when we, this is, this is a great gain of those decades of work that have been done since the 1960s by people who entered the historical profession and did this archival work to recover other people's lives, that there is this uh, centuries-long howl of protest by people whose land is being taken and whose lives are being taken. And as I say in the book, a lot of these protests are, are often made first at the pulpit. Uh, we see that, we know that in the 19th century where abolitionism is very bound up with the Second Great Awakening, but I, you know, I begin that, uh, you know, with, with Spanish priests who protest the conquest, who protest the enslavement of Native peoples in the 16th century, and who are giving, who, you know, are, who are amplifying the voices of Native peoples, uh, who can, you know, who insist generation after generation, by what right uh, do you do this? And the, and, the, and the Europeans have to say, by this right, this is our right, they have to right. defend their rights. Um, there's, there's this conversation that these these truths come out of. Um, so that it, it's, it's been a centuries-long struggle, and that the moment at which Jefferson is making those declarations is a, is a crucial turn, uh, but it doesn't stand outside that history. The idea that history can be done, that books of history can be written without judgment, is implausible. And one of the most important questions a reader should ask when reading this kind of book, certainly a book of the stature and scope as Jill Lepore's new history of the United States, is what kind of judgment is being made here? Judgment's going to be made in the micro level, dealing with incidents and events in American history. But judgment is also going to be made at the macro level, in the great narrative, the overarching story that is being told in what amounts to a one-volume history of America. I want to ask a, a pointed question, because at, at one crucial turn early here in the American narrative, you argue that those who, who began this experiment citing those three ideals, um, they, they had to come up with something in order to intellectually defend slavery. And you say it, it, that they came up with the idea of race. Yeah. I mean, you, what happens is, as I see it, and again, like every other piece of my argument, you know, this is my argument, but it also draws on the work of many historians. Um, David Bryant Davis wrote this incredible series of books starting in the 1960s on the problem of slavery in the Asian Revolution or the work of the great Winthrop Jordan, White Over Black, on the history of ideas about race. All this really kind of pivotal work from the 60s and 70s that looked at the kind of shifting ground uh, by which Europeans justified enslaving Africans, and that narrows in the in the American experiment to uh, to the Dutch and the English. Um, we're talking about North right. America. The Portuguese and the Spanish have different justifications. But we think about the Dutch and the English, and then finally about the English. The, the 
unsurprisingly, there really is, it, for, for the English, for the English colonists in the 17th century, there's nothing in English law that sanctions enslaving, <laughs> enslaving people. And so they're constantly having to sort of invent some rationale um, for uh, how can I, or I have enslaved this person and I came up with the rationale because really this person can be understood essentially as a prisoner of war and we can be understood as at war. Uh, well, then that doesn't work for well because then that person has a child. Right. Uh, and then uh, under English law, you know, uh, the child, and the, 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 fa- the father here was, was uh, the owner of, this, of a woman and the two of them had a child together. Under English law, the child would inherit the status of the father. Well, we're going to go back to Roman law. We have a different Roman law we're going to use, and we're going to say that children inherit the status of the mother. Oh, well, now actually, well, we that doesn't always work either. So what we're going to say is that it's actually if you're a colored person, then you're enslaved. Like it's always a shifting argument, and right. it's fluid for for quite a long time. I think that's an important point to make, and and uh, I think it's also important to understand that many of the central figures of the Enlightenment were trying to make similar arguments, if not about slavery, then about their understanding of the superiority of European civilization. Even someone like Immanuel Kant. I mean, frankly, I was I was surprised later in my life to discover the extensive kinds of racialist arguments that uh, that many of the leading figures of the Enlightenment were making. That has to be in the background as well. Absolutely, yeah. And these things they have a long tail. Uh, they 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 stick around for a really long time. Um, the incredible thing to me, I mean, I, I I spend a lot of time trying to reckon reckon with that. And but the way that I, I again, as you say, like the book is is very much about ideas, and so I want to introduce those ideas to people and acquaint them with those. But I try to deliver ideas in the form of people. <laughs> so the book is structured really around as much around characters as anything else, sort of well chosen characters who, are, or at least I hope they're well chosen who are chosen to to help the reader kind of put a face to a set of ideas. Uh, right. So you know when I tell the story of I talk about George Washington and Harry Washington. Here's a man born in Gambia that the Washington family purchases from a slave trader uh, and who later runs away and seeks his freedom and ends up uh, returning to Africa eventually. So that we kind of have a, so that it isn't sort of just like we're contemplating the ideas of the Enlightenment, but we're actually looking at people, uh, you know, African men and women or African born, an African born man like. Harry Washington, who confronts the ideas of enlightenment and says, no, thanks, you know, I'm, or, or, or also agrees with some of them. Like, actually, under these rules, I am a free man and I will leave uh, because I have a natural born right to my freedom. So uh, it's, I think it's important to, because the move of the kind of the counter narrative that you described earlier is to just say, well, we should just throw away George Washington. These people are unredeemable. They're, they're, they have a taint. They're, you know, they're stained with the original sin of slavery, uh, and then not wrestle with their ideas and not wrestle with the legacy of their own contradictions for us. Um, my move is always different. My move is always to sort of put them in the company of the people that they were in the company with in their lives. Uh, you know, so when James Madison is buying a parcel of books to read political theory because he's hoping to revise the Articles of Confederation and he wants to buy a copy of Hobbes' Leviathan and he writes to his father for a loan and says, you know, I might have to sell my man in order to buy these books. Like, that's actually, is for me, like, that's kind of moment I fall out of my chair over what I'm reading. Like, what does it mean to be Madison and imagining, like, 
selling a man, a, a person, in order to Incredible. buy a copy of Hobbes and Leviathan. <laughs> like, how how can you be in that head, you know? And so to right. try to have the reader be in that head a little bit, and then ideally maybe hear from that man, whose name is William Gardner, have him be, a, you know, a person on the page that a reader can see and, you know, hear from. Well, that's a part of what I think makes uh, these truths, your, your new book, so powerful, is because you actually do that, and uh, I appreciate uh, how you give voice to people who had previously not given voice, and how you see the the irony. You have an incredible uh, ability to uh, to see and detect uh, and reveal irony. You also have a way of making huge arguments in ways that uh, the reader could easily miss. At least I I think many readers might miss. And uh, for instance. About 200 pages into your book, you write, The United States was born as a republic and grew into a democracy, and as it did, it split in two, unable to reconcile its system of government with the institution of slavery. I want to look at those first words. That's quite an argument, actually, that America was born as a republic and grew into a democracy. Uh, that's a certain kind of narrative. Yeah, yeah, I... I, there's a lot of sort of end caps to a section where I offer up. Uh, That's like a bomb that right there. Can, something that I hope people can kind of can yeah. can receive and maybe pause over a little bit. Um, you know, the democracy. I, I can't remember exactly where that is in the book, but the democratization of American politics that we see, you know, in the beginning in the 18 teens, but especially in the 1820s and 1830s, is an extraordinary transformation of the system of government. And uh, I think that most Americans kind of collapse the whole thing into one. Um, that is to say, you know, the founding of the Confederated United States uh, uh, with the first Articles of Confederation, the, the Constitution itself, and the new federal, really national system of government. And then this very different animal, which is a, a fully um, different kind of notion of suffrage uh, and notion of majority rule that, you know, begins with the age of Jackson. So I get, I myself, my druthers, I just tell stories all day <laughs> and let the stories deliver the argument. But I, I pause often to sort of try to deliver kind of the big sweeping claim that, you know, that, 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 that people can see and, and wrestle with and maybe dispute. I mean, again, I'm not trying to write the final word on American history. One of the commitments I have as a historian, as a historian of this particular American experiment is the United States is an experiment in self-government in which we dedicate ourselves to inquiring uh, and participating in the experiment, then we have to constantly be open to scrutiny and willing to participate in debate and uh, be open-minded about uh, where the experiment stands and fair-minded. Well, and I appreciate an argument actually made as, 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 a, as a cultural and political theological conservative, uh, you know, reading the book. Uh, there were times in which my own diacritical marks that I've, I've used for all, all my adult life, there are times in which I, I register some pretty uh, tart disagreement with some of your arguments. But nonetheless, you make arguments, and I greatly appreciate that. Uh, and, and then again, you back it up and as, a, as a part of your narrative, and that's a part of what makes the book so interesting. I, I, I don't want to do what I think so many do with American history, and that's just skip over from the founding to uh, to, to the contemporary uh, although in, uh, in, in the book, you actually kind of say you began with the beginning and the end and then worked in the middle, which I, I do understand. But you are really writing as a progressive historian, uh, you, your own uh, political background, uh, abundantly clear in your writings in The New Yorker and, and, and elsewhere. 
uh, it it, uh, it drives you to a certain telling of the story. I think it's remarkably honestly told. But when when you look at uh, at how American history has been told in the past and compare it with the way you're telling it, one of the things you do is is to give voice to women and recognize the role of women throughout the American experiment, not just Jane Franklin in the beginning, but uh, Phyllis Schlafly uh, more recently. Um, that's just really interesting to me. And uh, and, and and by the way, I, I knew Phyllis uh, Schlafly and uh, gave a keynote address at one of her conventions one time for the Eagle Forum. And uh, she was just as formidable as you indicate in this book. But it's interesting that even when conservatives tell the story of America, they generally don't acknowledge the fact you make the argument that modern American conservatism really has more to do with the role of women than men. Well, I think, I guess I would say a few things here. I, one of the reasons that women are not at the center of American political history is that we define politics as electoral politics. And for much of American history, of course, you know, at the federal level, until 1920, women don't have any guarantee to the right to vote, although women vote in the state quite a bit earlier than that. Um, but if we're going to think about elect, you know, voting in elections is what politics consists in, then it makes sense for women to not be at the center of that story. But of course, women operate outside of politics uh, in that sense, uh, but do political work. And the form in which women's political activity in the American history has largely taken is the moral crusade, because absent the right to vote, women are sort of left with well, trying to persuade men to do what they think should be done. And, you know, beginning in the 19th century, the way women did that uh, just lined up culturally with ideas about the differences between men and women, um, and also with women's greater rate of church membership and greater participation in the Second Great Awakening was to say, women are more moral than men. So you should listen to us. And when we tell you this is wrong and this is wrong, you know, this is how we get prohibition, say. Um, but that, that sort of pleading uh, with moral authority and using moral suasion to alter the course of politics is historically a thing that women ha- had to do. They had no choice. If they wanted to you know, exert themselves politically, this was the mode that was available to them. And that carries down all the way to the present. I mean, you can think about the Me Too movement as a moral crusade at a time even where women have other forms of political power and ways to express political power. Um, whether you you know agree with it or disagree with it, I think it takes the form of it takes that kind of a form. Uh, and Schlafly, I think you, I'd be curious if you would know if you disagree. This is extraordinarily formidable woman, and I I think that uh, liberal historians leave con- the history of conservatism out of their histories, and conservative historians <laughs> leave the history of women out of their histories. So my history just has both of those guys. I spent a lot of time trying to write about the history of you know, conservatism that I think doesn't get enough attention. I think American religious history doesn't get enough attention in most academic scholarship. So uh, the history of women and a lot of other things I put in this book that I don't think get enough attention, the history of law, the history of technology. There's a lot, there's a lot that I try to like add back in that I think has right. gotten stripped out for one reason or another. Uh, but in my mind, Chaffley is this really just an incredibly foundational figure in 20th century American political history. And I do think is a, I, this is a, maybe a tough call to make, but I do think on the whole, women's political activity has tended to be more conservative uh, than not, yes. uh, taken taken on the, on the whole in American political history, which I think is, is interesting. 
and and worth thinking about, and maybe helpful to think about in terms of you know people who want to try to assess where the country is going now uh, or right. what's going on with the current gender gap. Uh, I think that I don't, I have no answers to any of that. I'm a historian, but I do think a fuller, richer sense of the history puts this present moment in a slightly different light. Well, I, I would simply add something, and uh, you 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 document what I think many American conservatives would not know, and that's the role that uh, that Phyllis Lafley played, for instance, in the Goldwater uh, campaign in 1964 and in the movement. But I, I will add something to what you wrote, and I'll simply say, knowing her and observing her, uh, it became very clear to me that uh, it was uh, it, it was. Uh, uh, people like Phyllis Schlafly, women like Phyllis Schlafly, who in many ways held conservative men accountable to conservative ideas. She was far less willing to compromise, uh, at least by my experience, than, uh, th- than many of the men. And she was backed up by an army. And, and, and you do reflect this in the book. She was, she was backed up by an army uh, of women who shared uh, her worldview and her convictions and uh, that that made a big difference. I, I appreciate the way you give attention to that. I, I also want to go back earlier where, where there isn't a conservative movement in America, where in, for instance, as you document, in 1949, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. could simply say that liberalism has no opposition. Uh, as, as he said, in the United States at this time, liberalism is not only the dominant but even the sole intellectual tradition. And, and that, by the way, is actually Lionel Trilling uh, following uh, in, in the argument of Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. Why did it not stay that way? Well, I think they were wrong at the time, right? They, they weren't accurately describing uh, the, the state of affairs. I think they were, to a great degree, dismissing what that opposition was, right? By saying it didn't even exist, they were looking at it and saying that this doesn't count and that doesn't count and this doesn't count. And some of those things count, you know? So I think they underestimated the opposition. I mean, I don't think a lot of historians would quibble with that. They missed, for example, uh, or gave no attention to the entire Southern agrarian tradition, an ongoing uh, conservative tradition that, uh, that I, I guess uh, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. didn't need to, uh, to even think about. Yeah, and it's it's actually part of, you know, I was saying earlier, the kind of consensus school of American history that gets blown up in the 1960s, largely from the left. It's 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 people like Schlesinger that they're, you know, and Hofstadter and these kind of these big lions of 1960s, 1950s historiography uh, that are being challenged by liberals and leftists in the academy. Um, but they are equally being challenged by conservatives. I mean, I think, you know, Buckley is going to come in and say, what are you talking about? Like, this is conservatism. Here's what it is. Here's our agenda. Right. Um, so, you know, there there is absolutely a transformation that happens in the 1950s. And, and that's when Schlafly enters the scene as well. And, you know, with these Republican suburban women who become the foot soldiers of the party, they become the foot soldiers of the conservative movement within the party. Um, they are the conservatives. You know, they really... Uh, just, just kind of in terms of doing the work, like precinct to precinct, stuffing the envelopes, doing that work. That's not the case with the Democrats in the 1950s. Uh, they're just not, the Democrats don't have this huge giant staff of, uh, of, of women who are doing, the, doing that labor, yeah. that, party, that party labor. So something really does change in the 1950s. It's not that, you know, Schlesinger and Trilling are like 100% wrong, but they've clearly underestimated what's going on. There's a lot that's not, there's a lot that's not visible to them. And one of the traditions of 
especially, I mean, this especially comes through with Hofstadter, you know, writing more in the 1940s. I mean, I think, I'm trying to remember what year he writes The Age of Reform, but Hofstadter and these other uh, mid-century liberal historians are defending the New Deal as a matter of historical interpretation, and they're defending the progressive agenda as a matter of historical uh, uh, interpretation. And they're also rejecting populism. So the conservative tradition in the late 19th century really is populism, uh, agrarian populism, the kind of populism of, you know, the Kansas farmers and William Jennings Bryan, and uh, the the sort of New Dealers and the progressives think that yokelism, you know, they yeah. find it vulgar. Uh, there's a lot of anti-Semitism in this populist tradition. Um, there's a lot of racism and nativism in that, in that populist tradition. There's a, there's a lot more than those things, but that tradition, it's not that it's erased by early 20th century uh, liberal historians, but it's pretty well wrapped up in a box and labeled discredited and set to one side. Um, so that's why I think that some, one of the reasons for that underestimation. Yeah, and I, I, I appreciate that. What, the frustration that comes to me is uh, in understanding that it's not so much that the critique of populism was wrong, but that the, uh, the, those, especially in the, uh, in the academic elites, uh, they, they failed to acknowledge that there was as much anti-Semitism in those ranks. Almost everything they criticized, uh, morally speaking, uh, of the populace was, uh, was, was pretty much institutional policy in the Ivy League for a very, very long time. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. And it, it really it really uh, produces a kind of blindness. There's this great essay Alan Brinkley wrote, well, maybe in the 80s, called like The Problem of Conservatism in American History, which just blew people away when he wrote it. I mean, he's at Columbia, and he said, you know, here's the problem of conservative in American history. Most American historians are liberals, and they paid no attention to the history of conservatism. That's they right. don't know anything about it. And it's as if it never happened. And now the country's conservative, and no one knows where you – know, historians are surprised. And there's this sort of like, like we, we, we want to understand what's going on. You actually have to, you know, study this history. Uh, and it produced a great – a whole lot of scholarship since then, um, since Brinkley wrote this kind of creed occur. Like, look, this right. is a problem. Like, this is just, this is just bad history. It's just bad scholarship. Um, you know, just because you don't agree with it doesn't mean it didn't happen, right? So um, that actually was a, a, a really important turn in, in historical scholarship. Uh, but, I, but, no, I agree with you there. And when you look at what that – what Brinkley's call has done is it has elicited, I think, some really tremendous work. I mean, for me, I went back – uh, and revisited the work of William Jennings Bryan, who's a really important figure, and also sure. so fun to write about and completely fascinating. And I will say, you know, my knowledge of Bryan really came from watching Inherit the Wind with Spencer Tracy and Friedrich March, and like, I it's about the Scopes trial from 1925, and I knew very little of Bryan. And I went and read a new biography of him by Michael Kazin, who's the editor mm-hmm. of Descent, called. A godly hero, I think, might be the name of the book, and it's just a quite sympathetic and I think uh, really, really interesting new biographical wrestling with with Brian and his legacy, and really changed my mind about a thousand things that I that I thought about Brian that I did not know. You know, there were just kind of things that were rolling around in my sure. head that, I, that were not actually bits of knowledge, but were uh, assumptions here and there. Well, that's a part again, I think, of what makes uh, the, this work so interesting. And 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 as a as a conservative, I was very very pleased and uh, and appreciated your attention to American conservatism. I was a bit surprised, honestly, about uh, 
uh, about your uh, your analysis of American liberalism or progressivism, uh, especially in more recent decades. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I guess I'm about to, but it, it seemed to me that you were you were demonstrating a great deal of frustration from the left about the left, and uh, that's incredibly interesting too. I mean, fr- frankly, uh, I- I- any conservative who wants uh, a judgment on the Clintons uh, can find nothing that lands stronger blows uh, that, than your work. T- tell me about American liberalism in, in the early 21st century. What, what does that look like now? Yeah, I, um, I, it's one of those things where, again, I, I'm, I'm trying very hard not to write a partisan account and to not write you know, with some political agenda of my own, but to do my best to, I think, really cross a partisan bridge and stand, you know, on the uh, stand on that bridge and occupy some space on that bridge, invite people to join me on the bridge and kind of look like at the other side of the river and uh, sort of see, see things, see things clearly. So I, I'm pleased that there are parts of the book that you agreed with and also pleased that there are parts of the book you didn't agree with, because I, I'm quite sure that liberals feel the same way. And that's, fine right like if if i'm not i'm not writing to please a political persuasion i'm writing to document and offer an argument that comes to me from my reading of the evidence and engage in in debate about it um i i i was speaking at the uh, u.s naval academy last year maybe the year before and i was delivering the george bancroft memorial lecture bancroft he was an american historian and had been secretary of the navy and or secretary of, secretary of war anyway there's this annual lecture and um it was a great honor to go to the naval academy it's a beautiful place and, and the lecture was um it was beautiful uh historic hall and the mid midshipmen come in and they're blues and you know they're they're required to come and everybody comes and you know they just look and they just look completely sharp, you know, they're fantastic. And I gave a lecture that was essentially reading the introduction to this book. And then, um, and then I, and, and they, it just takes a few minutes, but then I said, I, and, I'm, and I want to talk about American history as comprising 10 big debates. And here are what I think the big debates are. And I showed slides. I said, here's this debate and this debate and this debate. And, um, and I asked them, you know, so now it comes to the discussion portion of the evening. You know, what do you think the election of 2016? If we would say that 2016 was the most it was the 11th debate, you know, and uh, of these big epic, you know, kind of turns in American history, what was the debate about? What, what was the question being debated? And we had a great conversation. And um, <laughs> afterwards, the you know, various midshipmen came up to talk to me, and was going to, afterwards, a filing out of the room, and this one young man came up and said, "Fine." Before, you know, I mean, this is a compliment, but I, I, I've been in this room for two hours with you, and I, I just sort of say, like, I have no idea what your politics are, and, uh, and I, want, I, would, I hope you'll tell me, but I, I just I, I wanted to say that because it just doesn't happen very often. Uh, and it was like about the sweetest thing anyone had ever said. Sure. Like I, I was so glad, was, was so gracious of him to point that out. Um, that is, you know, that is a commitment that I made in undertaking this project. This isn't supposed to be a history that. You know, they said about Bancroft's original history of the United States that uh, it voted for Jackson on every page. <laughs> so right. Bancroft himself right. was was a, quite a partisan as a historian. Um, I think this was a long, evasive answer to your question of the state of American liberalism. Uh, I think American liberalism is 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 in a pretty significant crisis. I mean, so is conservatism. I don't think uh, yes either of these political persuasions is in is in is in good healthy shape. I think people. Uh, 
like the parties, uh, you know, the description, and I forget whose this is, but, you know, both are hollowed out. You know, they're quite hard on the outside and quite empty on the inside, uh, I think describes both the Republican and the Democratic Party at this moment and, and also conservatism and liberalism. And the process by which that happened interests me as a historian. How to fix it completely eludes me as a citizen. Well, it was uh, it was just very interesting to me uh, to see, and I've I've read so much. I, I read you in the New Yorker. I've read your other work, so I had some context in which I was reading these things. I want to tell you my biggest surprise in the book uh, is your convincing argument, uh, which shows up all the way in the beginning uh, when you talk about uh, King Numbers, uh, all the way through the book where you end up with the quants. Uh, where you go at public opinion and the measuring of public opinion and the manipulation of public opinion, politics by the numbers, as, as such a grave political and moral threat. I'm thoroughly convinced by the time I, I reach the end of your book. I guess I, I, do, I worry that I get a little overheated about that, but I find that awfully troubling. Um, I mean, I, I tried not to cast my contemporary concern back too far onto the past, but it was fascinating to see where that comes from and the leaps forward that it makes. But I mean, even if you just think about this fall, say, I remember during the the uh, the Brett Kavanaugh, the second round of hearings uh, with the Christine Blasey Ford testimony, that people would keep saying what Twitter thought, you know, what what that and that the members of the Senate Judiciary were consulting Twitter all the time. Um, to decide, you know, what the to take the pulse of the country or something. And first of all, Twitter is no measure of anybody's public opinion. It's probably the worst possible measure I could think of as a proxy for the American electorate. It completely disenfranchises the, you know, 84% of Americans who don't have Twitter accounts and never will, which is completely uninteresting to them. Um, so there's all kinds of problems with that. But then the Constitution doesn't subject the nomination of a Supreme Court justice to public opinion. Like, that's just actually unconstitutional. Like, we, the, the Senate Judiciary Committee is supposed to make a decision that the Supreme Court justices are not answerable to public opinion. That's, that's part of the separation of powers. So even if Twitter were a proxy for the electorate, we don't have a plebiscite, and we don't even have an election, nor do we elect our judges. Like, we, the, the, but the series of assumptions that lie behind like the reporter writing the story who says, well, this person on the Senate Judiciary Committee thinks that Twitter, you know, is being moved because of Twitter, somehow just has swallowed some idea that everything is reducible to a, 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 a kind of, some kind of a metric, you know, and in the end, it's like a likability factor. Uh, I, I find that quite, quite frightening because... Yes. I am a constitutionalist at the end of the day, and I, I you know, I, there's a lot that is protected by way of abuses of authority um, and the stepping of one branch of government on another. Uh, so I, this seems like maybe a, a strange example to give, but that just, it seems to me so, I think, frankly, shocking that anyone yes. would say we're choosing our Supreme Court justices by Twitter now and not put a question mark at the end of that sentence. Well, I don't think anyone had had uh, had done what you did in this book and, and really kind of driving that question through so much of American history. And, uh, you know, even 
the arrival of the machine age and the ability to count and to tabulate and, of course, the ability to measure all these things. Walter Lippmann, uh, you know, Loose, Time Magazine, you just go through the whole thing. And before you know it, this mass opinion becomes itself a machine. And at the end of the book, you actually use some of those horrifying language uh, I've read in a long time. The nation had lost its way in the politics of mutually assured epistemological destruction. Uh, now, that's the kind of phrase only a theologian could love. But that's, exa- but that's exactly right, is that mutually assured epistemological destruction. Uh, if there is something to fear in, uh, in our contemporary political scene, it certainly must be that. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a very reasonable fear to hold. So where do, you, where do you take the story from here? Obviously, you had to finish the book. You had to turn it in, and, uh, and that means uh, over a year ago in all likelihood. And, uh, and so the way history is moving these days, uh, it doesn't wait for anyone. So if you were to, to give us as a final word some idea of where you think the American experiment is headed, what would you think? I do think the tricky part right now is that the partisan divisions that are crippling good government or rendering good government essentially impossible to conduct were built manually by hand by specific people with specific political hopes and aspirations and even commitments and ideas uh, who hoped to gain adherence and worked hard to build lists, mailing lists and precinct lists and uh, and so made a decision to use highly emotional is- issues to get out voters to vote to win elections. And I think that happens on both the left and the right in the 1970s and 1980s. That's part of the book I called Battle Lines. Um, and that those, those really hard lines over what I think for most Americans, whichever side of partisan divide you follow, feel like urgent life and death issues. Uh, that divide, though, built by hand, is now done automatically by machine. I mean, that uh, sort of giant polarization machine that the internet has become, uh, kind of been jury rigged into. So now we have a kind of automated political divide. And I think real change, a kind of renewal of liberalism, a reform of conservatism, those changes that I think need to happen to kind of shake loose uh, from the machine, that's a lot of work. Um, That's a lot of people working with goodwill toward one another, some good faith in the system of government. We can certainly agree that we should uh, we should hope for that. And uh, I, uh, in, in that sense, I certainly share that hope uh, with you. And I have to tell you that uh, I, I am uh, I'm a bit envious of the students in your classroom there at Harvard. If you, if you can write like this and talk as you do, you've got to be a magnificent classroom teacher. So I, uh, I, I, I just want to say that with respect as a teacher and uh, and an institutional president, I, I, I just really admire what you've done here. I really appreciate the fact that you deal with ideas 
and I want to thank you especially today for uh, joining me for Thinking in Public. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's been a real treat. It probably says more about me than anything when I tell you that even as a young boy, I voraciously read history at the expense of almost everything else. As a teenager, I came across the three-volume history of the United States by Daniel Borston, who later became the Librarian of Congress. And I have been reading ever since I was very young, history after history. The one-volume histories, or the multi-volume, single-author works of American history— are increasingly rare. Jill Lepore in this book tells us why. It is because there's been a pushback against the very idea of telling the story that way, a pushback against the idea that a seasoned historian at the end of his or her career would write such a history. And frankly, there's a push against the very idea of a consensus narrative about American history. Jill Lepore, the historian before this book, is an illustration of giving attention to the smaller stories, the big ideas, but still the smaller stories, the untold stories, the voices yet unheard, the aspects of popular culture that have not been taken with adequate seriousness. But in this new book, These Truths, Jill Lepore steps back and, as historian and professor, looks at those three ideas that she says were at the very beginning of the American experiment, And by the time she finishes, several hundred pages later, she has followed through the logic of those ideas. The ideas of political equality, natural rights, and the sovereignty of the people are not just words. They're not just philosophical concepts. They become, at one point or another, more haltingly in some places, more rapidly in others, inconsistently here, more consistently there. They become the defining issues of the American experiment. But by the time you come to the end of the book, the question is, where do we go now? The right kind of history is the unfolding story that finally gets to us and then puts upon us the burden of what happens from this point onward. Professor Lepore's previous works and her writing for The New Yorker demonstrate the fact that she knows a good story when she sees one. And, of course, as you're looking at this book, one of the achievements is there are really hundreds of smaller stories within the overarching big story. That makes the book a page-turner. It really makes you want to go from one story to the next, and these stories are not just anecdotal. They serve the purposes of her narrative. They give voice. They help to articulate, flesh out by metaphor and illustration, by anecdote, by the right quotation. They give flesh and voice to the story of the American experiment. In an interview she gave about five years ago, Jill Lepore spoke of the historian's challenge in speaking of the decision of what gets saved and what gets lost. Now, just think about that for a moment. What gets saved and what gets lost? Well, it's simply true, profoundly true, irrefutably true, to say that most of human experience throughout most of human history is lost, certainly lost to the historian, lost in this sense to subsequent generations, just walk through a cemetery, any cemetery, and unless it's in the smallest of places in which you are most at home, you are going to realize there are untold stories that will never now be told, not with human breath anyway. The historical verdict changes over time, which stories should be saved, which stories should be lost. The explanation of what gets saved and what gets lost Well, that's at least partly ideological, and as we've also come to understand, it's partly economic. It's irrefutably political. 
And it's very important that when Jill Lepore writes this new one-volume history of the United States, very much in the background, if not in the foreground, is the fact that all of this is an ongoing dispute. It's an ongoing historical argument. And this is where Christians understand the importance of this argument, even beyond a secular understanding. It's because history is not just unfolding events. It is not just a human story. Christians have to place our understanding of history within the accountability of the entirety of the Christian worldview. And we come to understand that the historicity of the Christian faith, the historicity of biblical faith, is indeed an indication of just how seriously we have to take history. But that also means that we understand that history can never be read without a moral lens. As we are moral creatures, we're going to be encountering, considering, evaluating everything through a moral framework. There's a moral framework in this book. Jill Lepore in her previous writings and in her ongoing writing for The New Yorker is very clear about her own moral judgments, and she identifies very clearly with a very progressive understanding of morality in 21st century America. But she gives credit, she gives voice, she gives story to those who would disagree with her, even in moral and contemporary political conservatism in America. She also understands that there is a threat to the very idea of America when she thinks about those three founding ideas and then the contemporary expression of those ideas. There's a great threat in what she calls this mutually assured epistemological destruction. I think there is no doubt that as much as liberals and conservatives would disagree with one another about so many of the events, issues, personages, interpretations, even the meta narrative of this book. We both have a deep investment in avoiding that mutually assured epistemological destruction, the destruction of the very idea of truth, the destruction of the very understanding of meaning, the destruction of the ability to tell a story that is true or false, even within the context of all the postmodern concerns. Well, that mutually assured epistemological destruction is the destruction of more than epistemology, the understanding of truth. It is the obliteration and obscuring of the human story. As I said to Professor Lepore at the end of our conversation, I think she is probably just about incapable of an uninteresting thought. And thankfully, that comes through her pen in this book. It comes through her voice in this conversation. And I really appreciate the generosity of her spirit when she says that she hopes this starts a conversation that continues, both in agreement and in disagreement, and in that massive terrain between both agreement and disagreement. Again, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and many thanks to my guest, Professor Jill Lepore of Harvard University for thinking with me today. I just want to remind you that archived at albertmuller.com under Thinking in Public is an entire bank account of previous conversations. If you found this one interesting, I can guarantee you, you're going to find others interesting as well. Again, that's at albertmuller.com, right under Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.